Well, we've been in Job, as I said. Today we uh, are going to be reading a number of different passages from the book of Job about his faith. Job's suffering was all about the testing of his faith. Satan's contention at the very beginning, if you remember, was that Job's faith would not persist if troubles crashed down upon him. Now, in the book of Job, Job's sinful heart was also exposed through his dark days, but we're going to talk about that next week. Today, we're going to talk about how Job's faith persisted through his struggles. The first passage we're going to read is the most uh, known passage in all of Job, probably, after uh, his children were killed and his wealth was removed, we read in Job 1, 20 to 22, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then we skip over to Job 13, verse 13 to 16, where we read, this is again the words of Job in his conversation with his three friends. Let me have silence and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And then John 16, 18 to 21. O earth, cover not my blood. This is again Job speaking to his friends. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man, uh, uh, sorry, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. And finally, John 19, Job 19, 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now all through Job's life, just like you and I, Job had ordinary troubles. But sometimes troubles are more than ordinary. Sometimes we go through the dark night of the soul. Job 
was put by God in the disposal of Satan, the evil one, with only one limitation, that Satan would spare his life. And Satan used every liberty God afforded him. A, com- a frightful combination of suffering and sorrow came upon this unsuspecting man, all in Satan's grand attempt to break his faith and get him to curse God. Soon, Jacob, Job's spirit and hope were crushed. He had experienced so much pain and grief that his very existence had become a burden too heavy for him to bear. The poor guy is so tortured, so stunned, so bewildered, so weary that he curses the very day he was born and longs to die. And yet even now, Satan doesn't back off. He keeps the pedal to the metal, and he presses Job's friends to rub salt into Job's wounds. Job argues with his friends that they are wrong in their accusations, but frankly, he has no alternative explanation for his sufferings to offer in place of their theories. He has no understanding or insight to explain what has happened to him. Reason and logic provide no refuge for Job. Would Job's faith survive the incredible pressure? Would Job continue to seek God now that there seemed to be no external benefit for doing so? That's the question as Job's story unfolds. The only one Job can run to is the very one who seems to be shooting arrows at him without explanation. And yet, in spite of this, Job cries out, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And I know that my Redeemer lives. Like the apostles, Job was afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 9 goes on to say, ultimately it was all to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Though Job's experience was not singular and unique, but is common to many. In In terms of application, we're going to look at each one of the four statements of Job's faith that we've read and ponder each one. The first one is his original one in Job 121 probably the one he's most famous for. Job had allowed, I'm sorry, God had allowed Satan to engineer the death of Job's 10 children and the destruction of his entire estate. And I know that if you don't have children, then you can only imagine how devastating it would be to lose even one of them. 
Marianne and I have had a miscarriage. We've had a couple of times where we feared for the life of one of our children. And those experiences were enough to shake us to the core. But to lose all 10 of his children at once, how can we even begin to grasp the intensity and the trauma of this kind of experience? Years ago, a number of us went up the hill to Battlefield Baptist to hear the tragic testimony of the parents of a large Christian family who had been driving along with their kids in a big van in an interstate in the Midwest somewhere. And they ran over a thin strip of metal on the road, which was lifted up and sliced through the gas tank. And suddenly the whole van with their children in it was engulfed in flames. And they were the only ones who were able to survive. And they were badly burned. Horrific. Or think about Mary standing before the cross, watching her son die in fulfillment of the prophecy of Simeon, who said, a sword will pierce your own soul also, in Luke 2.35. But remarkably, in even hearing this news about this tragedy, Job responded with extraordinary faith. He worshipped and he acknowledged that when he was born he had nothing and that it was on God, not God's obligation to give him anything. But the Lord has given and now he's taken away and he blesses the Lord. Really an extraordinary statement of faith. What does worship mean to us? Is it the thing we do on Sunday mornings? Is it that meeting where people sing and pray and sit down and listen and we have, a, have to wait a long time for it to end? Or is it offering our lives as a gift to God, even if it means hardship, persecution, rejection, and pain? Real worship in the end is not about offering sacrifices to God. It's about offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. Over the years of pastoring this church, there have been a number of times, many times, where I've been so proud of people who came to worship, people who worked all night, but instead of going home to sleep after they get off they came to worship. People who just lost a loved one, but they came to church and brought their tears to the Lord. Or someone who just found out that he's lost his job again. Or someone who found out that her spouse had been unfaithful, but came nonetheless to present themselves to God in worship and to seek his comfort and help or a couple who just got married the day before and yet want to spend their first Sunday worshiping together, 
or people that just received a scary diagnosis from their doctor, but that didn't stop them from worshiping God, or someone whose child was just arrested and is in police custody, but they come to worship. They didn't come for show. They didn't come for a gold star. They came to worship their God because that's where they needed to go. We can learn a lot about Job's, about worship from Job's example. We can also learn a lot about preparing for worship from Job. You know, Job could never have reached this place of being able to react to such a tragedy by worshiping God if he hadn't spent many years building his house on the rock in preparation for the coming storm. Just as David, when he fought the lion and the bear, was preparing for the day when he would fight the giant, so in the smaller trials of life, Job had been preparing to trust God when the stakes were even higher. Job 13.15 is the second statement of faith that we're going to talk about. Job is feeling like his sufferings are going to kill him. But he declares, though he slay me, I will hope in him. In one sense, Job here is answering Satan's taunt. He will trust God even if God doesn't continue his earthly blessings and protections. He will trust God even if God slays him. He will not be driven away by pain. Job will trust God even when the burden God lays on him feels too hard to bear. And the pain God puts him through feels like it's going to destroy him. In saying this, Job's, Job foreshadowed the one who bore the weight of the world on his shoulders as he hung upon the cross. Though he was righteous, though his body was crushed, though he was treated unjustly, though he was mocked, though he was rejected, he did not cave into the pressure. He did not turn aside from his mission. And so it is with Job. This statement also shows us that Job knows that there is life after death. You can only trust God if he slays you, if you expect to exist after he slays you. Job understands the distinction between this life and eternal life. He is willing to lose everything in this life and trust God for his future. Probably none of us will ever experience anything close to what Job experienced in degree. But we'll all experience something of what Job experienced. We'll never have a time when God is, gives Satan permission to do everything short of take our lives. But we will all experience sorrows and pains and Sometimes they'll feel like they're more than we can bear. But no matter what the future holds for us, God is our hope. 
even in the darkest of days. Though he slay my career, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay my church, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay my ministry, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay my marriage, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay my family, yet I will hope in him. And on that day on which God has appointed us to die, whether it's in the prime of our lives or when we are ancient, he will be our hope on that day too. But this teaches us another important lesson about trusting God in the face of severe anguish. Here Job is not only trusting God for his present sufferings, he is saying that he will trust God even if the anguish gets worse before it gets better. Even though he slay me, even if it should come to that, I will trust in him. I will hope in him. The third of the four sayings is Job 16.20. It's not one of Job's most famous statements of his faith, but I think it deserves our attention. God, who created us, created us to cry, to be able to cry. Crying is a normal expression of human pain and grief. And there's a time to weep, and there's a time not to weep, of course. But here the point is not about when we weep, but about where we weep, or to whom we weep. There's a child who, when disciplined, lovingly, even lovingly and carefully, runs from his or her parents screaming, I hate you. Because that's the reaction to the pain. Job does not run from God or reject his maker. He sheds tears, but he sheds them to God. Like a child who has fallen down and hurt himself, he runs to God in his pain. If you've ever been to our house, you'll know that we live on the side of a hill. And it makes it interesting when there's a heavy rain. The water flows down the hill and then down, and down the road, and then it wants to flow down our driveway and wreak havoc. Because when that, all that water begins to flow down our driveway and beside our house and through our backyard, it causes a lot of erosion because our hill is very steep. For the first few years we lived there, I kept trying to block the water from going down where it was going. And then one day I got smart and I realized that I had been approaching the thing all wrong. Instead of trying to stop the water from going where I didn't want it to go, I needed to decide where I did want the water to go and then make it go there. And so ever since I've been digging and filling and raking and pushing wheelbarrows around to make the water go where I want it to go. The same thing is true with our tears. Instead of trying to resist tears, instead of allowing our tears to flow any which way, we need to decide where we want 
our tears to flow and then set things up to fl- for our tears to flow where they need to go. And where should our fl- tears flow? Or they should flow where Job said they flowed in, six, in uh, 1620. My eye pours out tears to God. Like Job, we should train our tears to flow to God. He is, after all, the one who stores our tears in his bottle and records them in his book, Psalm 56, 8. So dig channels for your tears. Don't just get sad. Get sad to God. Don't just grieve. Grieve to God. Don't just groan, groan to God. You're not alone in your grief, so don't grieve alone. Blessed are those who mourn to God, for they shall be comforted. The final one of Job's four sayings is in Job 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. This cry of faith means that on one level, Job knew that in spite of the torment he was experiencing, God was still his friend. God still loved him, even though he didn't understand why God was allowing him to suffer so. This is exactly what we need to remember when we're feeling like God is a million miles away. Or when we feel like he's allowed the lions to come into our house. Job had to decide whether God was his friend or his enemy. But the fact is, he who appeared to be his enemy was actually his Redeemer. And by saying, I know my Redeemer lives, we see that Job gets this. And we must get it as well. Jesus said, I am the true vine in John 15, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it might bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Sometimes it feels like God is killing us, when in fact he's pruning us. By saying, I know that my Redeemer lives, Job shows that he knows his suffering is temporary and redemptive. And how important it is for us when we're suffering to remember this, that redemption is coming. 
that no matter how invisible it seems that God is at the moment, one day we will see him face to face. And it will be clear why he did this, why he allowed this. No matter what happens to a Christian, there's never a reason to give up hope. Here, out of the dark bleakness of Job's sufferings, comes this expression of confidence in the happy ending that God had promised. This is not just some broad hope that everything will turn out okay. It's not just believing that everything happens for a reason. There is, this is believing that there is a personal redeemer who will set all things straight on some day in the future. And that this redeemer lives. He may not be here right now, at least he may not seem to be here right now. He may not be showing himself at this very moment, but he is out there. And one day he will no longer be silent. He will no longer seem to be inactive. One day he will rise up. One day I will see him. One day he will come. One day he will redeem my life and my troubles and my sufferings and my sorrows. One day he will make it all right. Beloved, at times in life, there are waves of temptation to give up. Times when things don't make sense. Times when circumstances feel like God is doing more harm to us than good. That's the way it was for Job. And at those times, we need to remember Job and others among our forefathers who fought through the same kinds of difficulties and persevered in faith. What a blessing that God has given us, Job and others, as examples to cheer us on, to cry out to us of the victory that awaits us if we just persevere. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, their one true light. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long steals on the ear that distant triumph song and hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. You see, the life of faith is a battle, and it's a marathon. Near the end of a marathon, the runners feel like they're just about to die. 
And yet, with the crossing of a line, there's a complete reversal. They go from the dying of exhaustion and fatigue to the living of celebration and victory. Sometimes a life of faith feels like dying. And we need encouragement to keep going. We need reminders of what it's all about, why we're doing this, and what the finish is all about. My daughter-in-law, Elise, is, on a, is in a running club in Boston. And they, ent- they have races and they enter races, not only in their own area, but even in other parts of the country. A little while back, they traveled to Chicago for a race. The strange thing is that it's not just the, the people who are going to run in that race who travel to the, to the destination, but it's others who are either injured or for one reason or another can't run. And I said, why would you go to Chicago when you're not even running in the race? Well, it's because when you're putting yourself through a grueling race, you need encouragement. You need people to cheer you on. You need people to remind you of what it's all about. And it occurred to me that Christ Church is a running club. We're in this race together. We get encouragement from each other and from those who have gone before us. By the end, Job looked anything but triumphant. He looked pathetic, broken, tortured, miserable. But to God and to us, Job was a beautiful sight because Job was faithful. He was running the race, and he didn't give up. And now Job and a whole cloud of witnesses witness to us of the triumph awaiting those who press on and do not give up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to our Redeemer Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, 1-3. You know, Job is only, I believe, mentioned once in the whole New Testament. It's in James 5, 7-11. And this is what it's about. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So his point here about Job is not just to hold them up as an example of steadfastness, but as a story in which we see the purpose of God. You have seen the purpose of God in the story of Job, that, that God had a purpose for his sufferings, even though Job didn't understand it. So it is with us sometimes. And we see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Sometimes it's so hard to believe in someone's compassion and mercy when they seem to be allowing you to experience pain that you can't endure. But it's true. God is compassionate and merciful. Some don't win the prize, though, because they don't finish the race. Now, I'm telling you something that a lot of churches won't ever tell you today. They'll tell you that you, be, you can be sure that you're saved no matter what you do. But it's clearly not what the Bible says. Jesus himself says, many will fall away. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Does this mean that salvation is by something you do instead of by grace? Not at all. Salvation is purely by something God does. But true faith, which God gives, true faith, the kind God gives, is persevering faith and not the faith that gives up before the end. So let us not grow weary of doing good. For in, doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When runners run in a long race. They can't go that long without some nourishment because their, their bodies you know, need liquid and their bodies need strength. And you've seen the races. You know, they run by and there's tables of, of a, a drink. Or there's tables of something to throw in your mouth and they just grab it as they go. And uh, you might have even uh, heard the report that at the Olympics, I believe in the marathon, one of the uh, participants was specifically uh, trying to prevent his fellow competitors from picking up their nourishment. He knocked things out of their hands when they were trying to, to get the nourishment they needed. Well, in many ways, the Lord has provided us with a table to receive nourishment as we run this long race. 
But we also have an enemy who would love to thwart our deriving nourishment from the provision of the Lord through whatever means. It might be, you know, having had such bad experiences with churches that, that you cut yourself off from church and, and, uh, and therefore lose access to the sacrament. Or it might be because you come and you don't even, you're distracted by other things and you're not really looking to the Lord for nourishment when you, and you might partake it with your body, but you're not taking anything into your soul. But the fact is God knows that, our, that we're weak and he knows that this is a long race and he's given us what we need. And what we need is to remember Jesus. What we need is to keep our eyes on him, to remember what he went through and remember who he, wanted, who he went through it for and remember what he achieved as a result of it. And so this morning as we come to the table, let us not waste this precious opportunity, but let us make use of the means that God has given us to receive his strength. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for this precious gift. Forgive us for all the times that we come to the Lord's Supper sort of mindlessly and uh, in a perfunctory matter, manner. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. Help us to recognize how much we need you, how much we need your help. Help us to recognize, dear Lord, what a great supplier you are for all of our needs if we would but look to you and fill us, O oh Lord, that we might endure to the end and with Jesus receive the crown of glory. We pray in his name. Amen.